0: Organizations are flawed because they're made up of people and people are inherently flawed and we're inconsistent regardless of, you know, I'm a student and teacher of leadership, for example, but I'm not a perfect leader by any means. It's a lifelong journey of development and course correction. Every single
1: individual has a story to tell and they're great stories that need to be heard.
2: I want every listener to know they have the ability to change the world.
1: to the 1720 podcast.
2: What's up, Mountain Movers? Kevin Carey here with my co-host, Stuart. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining 1720, and we're honored to have a guest, Brent Gleason, with us. Thank you for joining.
0: Thanks for having me, guys. It's an honor to be on the show. Thanks for coming down, right? Like uh, we were just talking
1: before we hopped on. Brent is in town from San Diego, and so bringing you
0: high-quality audio instead of Zoom stuff. This is the main reason I flew all the way out here to see you guys.
2: (laughs) Just
1: just to sit in the Texo studio for 1720. Yeah, Uh that's right.
2: We're going to get a surprise invoice next week. First class flight, the whole nine. (laughs) I thought thought we talked about that. Nah, man, we
1: don't pay first class, sorry. (laughs) Uh, All right, so we normally kick this thing off just for those who don't know who Brent Gleason is. Give us like your elevator pitch, What's your five seconds of who you are,
0: man. Sure. Uh, grew up in Dallas, Texas. Did undergrad at SMU. Uh, worked as a financial analyst for Trammell Crow Company for a year. Joined the Navy. Became a SEAL. Went to war a few times. Transitioned out. Built a couple companies. Written a couple books. And uh, wife, four kids, two dogs.
1: What kind of dogs? There's a lot in there, but all of a sudden, I'm interested in the dogs. Yeah, of,
0: of all that, <laughs> I just said, the dogs is what he asked. Him. Must be a dog guy.
1: No, actually, I'm not, but we won't, get do- we won't get bugged down on that. We won't get bugged down on that. A uh, no, lot, lot of ground to cover. A lot yeah, of ground to cover.
0: We have a, one a rescue dog. She's a mix, probably the Australian Shepherd in lab, and then we have a crazy one-year-old German Shepherd, mm. untrained and smart.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, the cool thing is I got connected with you through LinkedIn. It was through your new book, Embrace the Suck. Uh, immediately downloaded it on, on, on audible and started listening to it while I was running so you know very <laughs> fitting and ironic at the same time and a lot of laughs in the book a lot of motivation in the book uh, but the biggest thing is you you mentioned it in the elevator pitch you go from SMU financial analyst to tram at trammel Crow to Navy seal and I what does that transition look like? I thought that seemed like an obvious transition. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Isn't that what everybody did?
0: <laughs> it is actually kind of a, a funny story because uh, I had a really good friend at SMU, one of my fraternity brothers, who was a year behind me in school. And he actually was one of these young men who had more or less a childhood dream of becoming a Navy SEAL. Yeah. Now, keep in mind, the mindset was a little different. This was just pre-9-11, so it was peacetime. So It was more of a, a personal challenge and, and something to uh, you know aspire to. And I had really had no, no aspirations or visions of military service at all. I was, you know, going down the commercial real estate path and I uh, wanted to, you know, eventually probably be a real estate developer. And, but he and I started training together. So I had played uh, sports in college, played rugby and wanted to stay fit, have an accountability partner and also kind of simultaneously help a good friend prepare for his arduous, uncertain journey ahead. And so we were training every night, uh, running, swimming, calisthenics, training for marathons on the weekends. And so, by nature, we were spending a lot of time together, having a lot of dialogue about uh, the implications of what he was attempting to accomplish. And obviously, it piqued my interest, so I started researching and reading books around the history of the naval special warfare community, our forefathers from the underwater demolition teams in World War II, to how we essentially cut our teeth as an elite assault force in Vietnam Mm -hmm. in conflicts thereafter. And uh, over that period of time, that growing fascination uh, you know, led to the culmination, ultimately, of a decision to join him in on his journey. And I remember I was sitting on the 42nd floor of uh, my office at Tremel Crow in downtown Dallas. And I sat down and I I was supposed to be working, but I wasn't. So that's one of those disengaged employees because yeah, I yeah. had a new vision. Uh, <laughs> and I wrote my parents a letter telling them, hey guys, I know I've never talked about this, but I am quitting my job that you were so happy that I have. Uh, and I'm enlisting in the Navy uh, to attempt to become a SEAL, which arguably has about an 85 to 90% failure rate. Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, uh, before the cautious optimism set in, there was more of panic. <laughs> and so my dad, actually, his first step was to introduce me to one of his, uh, my parents both went to SMU too. And, uh, one of his swim teammates at SMU had graduated SMU and become a seal during the Vietnam war. Oh,
2: wow. And That's cool story, yeah. that
0: guy was actually living out in La Jolla where in, in San Diego, where all the initial training happens. So he introduced me to Tom, who was a, a Merrill Lynch, uh, running a business out of Merrill Lynch. And, uh, I think the initial strategy, though, of introducing me to Tom was that Tom talked me out of it. <laughs> yeah, abs- I mean, absolutely. So that's, that the that's
2: uh, and, uh,
0: you know, then it was a speeding freight train from there.
2: I know it was in one of the books that. You walk through the hallway with a bunch of papers to pretend you were busy because you had to go train and all that through that journey.
0: Well, yeah, because I, I wanted to, you know, every night I was living in, in the uptown area of Dallas. So uh, I would run about about four miles from my apartment to SMU, swim a mile, do calisthenics, run four miles back. So pretty time consuming training regimen. So, you know, I wanted to leave the office around five or five thirty. But I was also the new guy and people don't expect new guys analysts especially to be leaving before the boss yeah right so the more i was training the more serious i got about doing it before i announced to to my team that i was going to be leaving the organization uh i didn't want to be tasked with something new at five thirty. <laughs> so right. i would literally put a bunch of papers like this in a manila folder and walk briskly through the office from the copy room and back and kind of look stressed to make sure yeah. that people oh, he, oh well i'll leave him alone he looks like he's really into a project right now. <laughs> uh, I mean, didn't, it didn't work very well.
2: But. It reminds me of George Costanza from Seinfeld <laughs> yeah, when he's I trying know. to fake his job, and he looks really upset, and <laughs> he's moving papers, and like, oh, don't bother George. He's where do you, he's where, under it. Where do you think I got the idea? Really? Yes. <laughs> so, so
0: good. That yeah. and napping under my desk.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. with the alarm clock. It's a bomb! <laughs> what? Is
1: that St- Costanza, too? Yeah. I remember the napping under the desk. I don't remember that part. He, <laughs>
2: he kept modifying his desk, and then he put an alarm clock in there, and his boss heard it. It was... <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) It's like fake George Steinbrenner. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, that's a
1: classic. Oh man, Seinfeld! I was not expecting to come up in the (laughs) middle of a, How did you become a Navy SEAL story?
0: (laughs) It's a lot of subtle nuances in my journey. Yeah. yeah, All
1: right. right. All right. So, mom and dad, what do they think? You're crazy. They're trying to talk
0: you out of it. See what Tom will tell you. Initially, I mean, they asked a lot of questions, and uh, you know, obviously, you know. Being who they are, they did a lot of their own research, and obviously, my dad called Tom and was asking him about it. And uh, again, a little bit different because it was peacetime, so there wasn't that uh, immediate fear of you know going downrange into co- into a combat zone. Yeah, t- um,
1: time frame is here because obviously, it happens while you're training or yeah. in the seals. So, what when what what's the timeline here?
0: Graduated SMU in '99, okay. immediately started working for Crow uh, right after I graduated, uh, and then that bled into 2000, uh, and then. Uh, my buddy and I, once I did leave Crow after, I think it was about nine months, uh, we moved up to Crested Butte, Colorado to train for, uh, a few more months at extreme high altitude, uh, Mm -hmm. to really get our uh, bodies and minds in uh, the best condition we could. Uh, and then joined the Navy in the summer of 2000. And then, I mean, I was, went to, um, basic training and then straight into seal training. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, and then we, and then I went to Bud's and you, Basically, just for so the listener understands, the pipeline uh, is well over a year, and it's broken into different segments. But what you think of typically SEAL training you see on you know documentaries or movies Bo- is BUD. Boat teams and stuff yeah, like that. It's yeah, it's Basic Underwater Demolition SEAL is the acronym of BUDS. And it's six months long with three phases, Hell Week being the, the fifth week. Um, and then you go on to Advanced Training or SQT, SEAL Qualification Training. And we had a few days off between BUDS and SQT, and that's when uh, 9-11 happened. Oh, man. The timing of that is... Crazy, right? Well, it is. But people always ask, "Well, what was the mindset, you know, of people?" But within, obviously, the special operations community, it's go time. You're all in already, and now you're really all in. And it was, and this isn't to sound macho or crazy, but people wanted to get downrange and take the fight to the enemy. And special operations had boots on the ground 36 hours after the second tower fell. Wow. Uh, You know, tier one assets, yeah, uh, uh, down there. But uh, and and just historically looking back, we're like, "Well, this is going to be over before it begins." We got to get over there. 20 something years later and here we are. Yeah. yeah.
1: I actually got chill bumps when you said that cuz like the idea would have been like I think to the to the listener you think oh that's kind of scary that that happened when you're in the middle of training but I like I'm not a seal but I I I like I can appreciate the mentality of
0: that's why I'm here. Like yeah. let's do this. Well, let me tell you an interesting quick story about mindset is the guy, one of the guys in the class ahead of me, we run six classes a year. So every couple months, new classes begin. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had tried to quit during Hell Week. And the one of the instructors liked him, or maybe he was a friend of a friend and encouraged him to stick around. And he did. And when nine eleven happened, guess what? He quit. Oh, left the teams, turned in his trident. Really? Mm-hmm. That's why <laughs> that's why we have the process we have in place. I was just thinking like they were trying to get yeah. rid of
1: that guy. Or he was trying yeah. to
0: like, self-remove. Yeah. Self, um, and, and, and as an officer, if you quit during BUDS, you are never allowed to return. Sure. Enlisted can come back depending on the situation, but
2: officers are never
0: allowed to come back. Man,
1: that's a crazy story too.
2: So you're prepping to go to BUDS and done some research on BUDS, haven't lived it. I'm sure Hell Week lives up to its name, and I'm sure it didn't. <laughs> your training didn't hold a candle to what you came in and expected. Right?
0: Yeah, it's you know, and I, I mentor young guys into the program now. I've mentored seven people now. Uh, I'm not taking credit for their success, but all have become SEALs. Uh, but also, that's just being careful with who I spend my time with and the guys I select, uh, who perceivably have the the right passion. Uh, and vision for what they're trying to accomplish. And, uh, you know, they have the same questions I do. Well, how do I prepare? What's the hardest part? How do I get through that? And there is no real answer for that because it's a different physical and emotional cognitive journey for everybody. Everybody has a different experience, um, you know, uh, with especially Hell Week. Uh, So for the list, Hell Week is the brutal crucible that all seals share that very few students actually navigate. So for easy math, you might begin first phase of BUDS with a couple hundred students in your class. You'll lose about half of those before you even get to Hell Week because those weeks leading up to Hell Week are very similar to Hell Week. You just get to sleep a few hours a night. Mm. And then you go into Hell Week. Everybody goes into Hell Week either injured, sick, or both. (laughs) You're not starting off as a high performer going into Hell Week, uh, which is you know arguably going to be one of the worst weeks of your life. And it's designed that way. starts on a Sunday evening, ends on a Friday afternoon. Uh, The beauty of the Sunday is you report to the classroom early in the morning and you don't know – Exactly when it's going to start? Hmm. That's by design, of course. Yeah. So they let the anxiety and the fear of failure eat away at your Oof. soul <laughs> before you begin. <laughs> and during Hell Week, you you literally like you run the equivalent of multiple marathons while wet and sandy. You swim dozens of miles in the open, frigid ocean. People think, "Oh, California!" No, the water's cold. Yes. Yeah. And we were a winter Hell Week. It was 55 degree water, and their one of their goals is to keep you, uh, you know, cold, wet, and sandy, and, and borderline hypothermic off and on throughout the entire week. And so you're, you know, you're running the obstacle course multiple times a day, endless calisthenics, brutal beatings, it's constant motion and, um, and you know, pretty much constant second stage hypothermia. And you're doing that with, you know, broken bones, stress fractures, Joint injuries, uh, you know, severe, <laughs> the most severe chafing, gentlemen, that you could ever imagine. <laughs> yeah, in all the areas you would never want to be severely chafed. I'm saying no skin on your shins, knees, between your legs, <laughs> around your waist, your nipples are gone. Yeah, and the top of your head is a bloody mass from Karen Boats around. On your oh head. my
1: gosh, so it's it's awesome that I am. A hundred percent sure, the physical component of that is unbelievably difficult. To me, the part that like would be so harrowing was not the body part, though. You're trained
0: for that. Yep. It's what's in your head. It, it's it's. Yeah. People always ask, well, is it more physical? Is it more mental? And, you know, obviously most people err on the side that it's, it's definitely more mental. Uh, yeah, your body's broken. You're in, you know, severe pain. You're freezing cold. Uh, you know, you're, you're, but you're experiencing, you know, deep anxiety, a fear of failure. Um, you know, stress and you're trying to work collectively with your team and your boat crew and, uh, and, you know, people are dropping like flies. And, you know, for some people, for me, when people are like, well, how, how was, how did that react? You know, how that, uh, impact you mentally when you saw people quit. I was like, I'm more of an analytical thinker. I was like, that's great. Statistically, my chances just went up, gentlemen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it's very hard to make friends in the early stages of odds It goes, oh, where's Johnny? Oh, Johnny quit two days ago. You didn't know that? Right. Because uh, it's chaos. You're just like, and you're so delirious by the second day of Hell Week that uh, you're hallucinating. You're just staying in motion. Um, And then we had a a very um, unfortunate uh, experience in our hell week. Our our class leader, the highest ranking officer uh, in the class, uh, um, died on Thursday, uh, 15 hours before we were going to be secured from hell week.
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, He
0: had caught um, uh, really bad pneumonia. And, you know, we can Monday morning quarterback it all day long, but as opposed to medically pulling him from hell week. They asked him, can you continue? And, and he, of course, the guy he was, he was like, hell yeah, I'm going to continue. Right. And um, he got, you know, a really bad pulmonary edema. His lungs filled with fluid. We were in the pool, and he, he drowned. Oh. So, and you know what the commanding officer of Bud's told us? We were, they had pulled us out of the pool. It was pure chaos. You could hear in the instructor's voices. They're like, get out of the pool, get against the fence, face the other way, look down, close your eyes. And you could definitely tell that <laughs> something is wrong because SEAL instructors don't panic. Yeah. Right. They yell a lot, but they don't panic. And they got us up. They ran us back across the street from the Naval Amphibious Base to the Special Warfare Center, put us in the classroom. We waited and waited and waited. And ultimately, they came back in and they're like, you know, he just walked to the straight of the room and turned around and said, uh, Gentlemen, Lieutenant John Scott is pronounced dead. Lieutenant Parado, you're second in command. You're now class leader. He said, Gentlemen, Get used to this feeling you have right now. Mm-hmm. This is what life in the teams will be like. This will not be the last friend or teammate you lose. Man. And if this was a book or movie, we'd call that foreshadowing. Because mm-hmm. literally, again, you know, seven or eight months or whatever it was later, it was 9-11. Right. And so, yeah. And, and you know, as you can imagine, I, I can't remember how many funerals I've been to since then. So. Yeah, right.
1: Do, do you, when you get de- eventually deployed, right? Do you go
0: with those guys from your buds group or are you just a new, a new okay. group of dudes? You can, uh, it depends. You get an advanced training. I'm not sure what, I mean, it's a similar process now, probably In advanced training. You can, uh, fill out a wish list of your top three teams. You want to go to most people pick a coast. So I want to go East coast. We have teams in Virginia beach in that mm-hmm. area. And we have the other teams in San Diego and one in Hawaii. And so people pick based on mostly on their geographical location, or if they have friends in another team or they're from the East coast or they're from the West coast. um, and, uh, you know, so I picked uh, team five and I did have, um, one guy from my buzz class uh, that was in my first platoon. So
1: cool. So, uh, deployed a little, you say two
0: times, three, three times. Uh, yeah. how, when were those? Yeah. And it's that, honestly, I'll say that, you know, my contribution to this war on terror, pales in comparison to many, many of my brothers and just many servicemen and women who do this as a career. Mm-hmm. Uh, these days in special operations, that's, that's nothing. I mean, I've got friends who've done 15 combat deployments. And uh, again, career special operators, yeah. um, that was never part of my plan and I kind of stuck to that plan. But um, uh, twice, two diplomas to Iraq and one to Africa eventually back to the
1: states uh, I don't know what the term is for getting out of the military transition transition yeah. uh, what's what's next for you
0: uh, that's, you know, that's always a big topic in, in the military is, you know, the, the, the difficulty sometimes of that transition. And what I've seen is people who have a very executable plan, you know, when they transition out and they start, you know, planning for that transition well before they get out, usually have more success or they also aren't distracted by, uh, you know, some of the other burdens they carry, you know, emotionally or yeah. mentally. And so, cause they, they're focused on, you know, the new career or the new path of the new vision or whatever they're trying to, whatever goals they set. So, my transition plan um, that came together was to go to graduate school uh, immediately after. So I took the GMAT uh, before my last deployment. <laughs> you know, I said, Trying to study for the GMAT and then get ready for deployment was kind of difficult. <laughs> but um, it was kind of funny how competitive we are in the teams. I, there were a few other guys who were transitioning at the same time, and they were going to go to grad school too. So I was like, what's, uh, what's, what was your GMAT score?" <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm not telling you, dude. What was yours? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was like, one guy who I knew was already, he did his undergrad at Stanford, super smart platoon commander. And uh, he and I was started the same GMAT prep course, and he went one day. He was like, this is bullshit. I'm just going to study on my own. And he, like, aced it, wow. <laughs> whereas I studied my butt off. And you got a let's say I got a good enough yeah. score to get into grad school.
2: <laughs> I can relate to the latter. Yeah, I was just about to say,
0: not everybody gets dealt the same hand of cards. You just yeah. play with what you got, I guess. Yeah, yep. well. it's like, you know, it's the same, same mantra, but like, you know, you go to medical school, or you go to law school, or you're... You pass, you're, you're a lawyer, you're a doctor. Yes.
1: <laughs> we joke about the bar exam as being a, a, an examination of minimal competency. <laughs> and it's like, well, you're not too stupid to be a lawyer,
2: I guess. That's what the exam
0: tells you. This will work. This will <laughs> do,
2: yeah. Anyway. You can remember some things.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I, I started the grad school program like literally a week after I got out. So.
2: And I think it, from uh, – we had a conversation before we got on air, before taking point uh, – Launches, you have a few business ventures prior to that. Yeah. So the first uh, is a very cliche story. I met my
0: former business partner in grad school. Um, and of course, we we're like, I had never had aspirations of being an entrepreneur either, uh, which arguably has a similar failure rate as SEAL training. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, well, I had developed a taste for calculated risk. So right. we actually, one of our, uh, Projects for our uh, finance class became the initial business plan for the first company, which was a uh, uh, early version of... It was a home-finding search engine, so early version of, like, Trulia or Zillow. Um, and uh, we raised about a million and a half... We graduated and launched it, raised about uh, a million and five and we were it, it, it's its rapid growth was not due to our entrepreneurial savvy and intellect it was cuz we were riding the housing bubble all the way to the top mm. and then 2008 happened in 2009 and um and it, it it didn't implode immediately but it definitely plateaued so that was my first experience pivoting on the battlefield of business <laughs> like oh shit <laughs> we need to find some new revenue streams <laughs> we need to diversify quick pivot <laughs> And But what we actually did, what we did was we had learned so much about digital media, analytics, lead generation, uh, with just running that business and driving traffic to the site for our, our clients and customers uh, to generate home buyer leads uh, that uh, we started a, a digital agency. there's um, a lot of our clients were like, well, do you guys build websites? Do you guys do search engine optimization or paid yeah. media strategy? And we're like... Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I <laughs> and do. And now, and now we're like, yes, absolutely, we do. So, uh, we actually borrowed a uh, hundred thousand dollars from the first company. We gave those shareholders equal common stock shares in the new venture um, because it's it, you know it's. It's it's the ethical thing to do, but you could argue from a legal standpoint that it's a, a what they call it a corporate opportunity. Meaning, we're kind of technically using. Mm-hmm. They see it as we're using their money to start a new venture, so they definitely want a piece of that. Yeah, and it was the right thing to do because that business took off and you know doubled in size and both headcount and revenue every year and uh, exited out of that in 2016. But like we were talking about before, what I found was not necessarily a passion for a specific industry, but a passion for building organizations and great people practices and designing a culture that delivers actual business outcomes uh, and, and how you develop leaders and, and how leadership impacts employee retention, customer retention, and profitability. Yeah. Which
1: is, I mean, all, all the things we got to leading up to here, our, our listeners love hearing those stories. But this is like the meat and potatoes because I think most of our listeners are folks We're trying to figure that out, growing their businesses, just looking for a nugget of something, you know, to help pick up and and move the ball forward every day,
0: sort of say. So I'm looking forward to chewing through some book talk here in a second. Yeah, absolutely. And we we were talking about this earlier. Uh, You know, people are like, well... You know, investing in our people and developing people and developing leaders is is costly. It's it's time intensive, and you know, what if those people leave? And like Henry Ford said when he was mm. challenged on that many years ago, he said, "Well, what if we don't develop them and they stay? Right. <laughs> so then you got a bunch of mediocre people all doing different things, <laughs>
2: and the business will. It is impossible for the business to go, p- grow past a certain point." Mm-hmm. And we don't understand our timeline until we can reflect back on it. But you have that SEAL career, MBA, a couple of business startups that I'm sure had a ton of adversity in the scaling and and turnover and all sorts of headaches. A lot so, of
0: a lot of me in the fetal position, crying. <laughs> yeah, it's like hell we got here. Yeah, exactly. It's a great leadership style. Every day is a Monday, and this is my own company. What's going
2: on? <laughs> but that helps probably launch taking point and makes you more well armed to help the business sector. Because not only do you have a well structured program through SEALs, but have had two business ventures now.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, you could argue one way or the other, but that's, you know, our. Perceived value proposition and what why our client partners uh, bring us in as a strategic partner is because we've also done it, uh, and many of our you know uh, director level folks have done it and built organizations or had you know senior level executive roles in organizations, but also have the you know the MBAs and the PhDs and have worked at Deloitte or McKinsey or, or what have you, right. and so there's a lot of diversification of thought and experience, um, but also. It garners a certain level of understanding from the people we're working with because, like, oh well, they actually know what they're talking about, not because they went through a training program at Deloitte, but because they've done it themselves, right? And failed a lot uh, in these endeavors too. So there's
1: a lot of lessons through all of that, right? The yeah. uh, we we talk a lot about figuring out what your lessons are through failure.
0: Yeah, like, boy, if yeah. you're not learning through that, pff, you missed it. Well, when it comes to that philosophy of failure, one of my SEAL buddies said this the other day. <laughs> Uh, he actually said it to to my son. We were going through this cool program that he's a part of uh, called the Squire Program for uh, thirteen to fifteen year old boys. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's you know, when you think of the concept of failure, uh, when you hit an obstacle, you're you're either winning or you're learning. You're not failing. If you look at it as failure, then <laughs> you're looking at it the wrong way. Yeah. You know, I call them micro failures, and they're just obstacles and things you're going to learn from and grow. It's a growth mindset. I talk a lot about that in the uh, in the new book. Too. Mm-hmm. What what
1: uh, my wife actually a long time ago talked about writing a book. We never could figure out what she was going to write and it never got off the ground. And the other day I was like, you got lots of time. You should write your book. And she was like, ah, kind of out of it. But what, I think
0: everybody's got a book in them. I really do. That's for you. Actually,
1: you should write that book. Um, <laughs> the, what, 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 what motivated you to write it? Uh, the first book
0: taking point uh, is a book really about, you know, leading organizational change and transformation, very into leadership and culture initiatives. Uh, that was, Really, a strategic uh, move. People are like, "Oh, you're going to write a book." You know, you're a seal. Obviously, you're going to write a book. So, <laughs> <laughs> they now uh, there's a fourth phase of buds now. It's yeah, uh, Writing, speaking, and acting during
2: and, Hell Week. Yes, yeah, and
0: and you know, <laughs> and acting, is that a big how to post- hone your six pack and how to gel your hair properly? <laughs> <laughs> is, is acting a big
1: post seal career move?
0: A little bit. It's some guys are you know, they're kinda dabbling in it. They usually start off as like extras or sniper number one. (laughs) (laughs) See, there's my name on the credit. That's funny. Um but um but a lot of guys have, as you can imagine, written books. And that was that was not to get off on a quick tangent, but um that was obviously very frowned upon and sort of the old school mindset of the, the silent warrior mentality, but there are important stories to be told uh, and, and guys tell them in a very humble and respectful manner uh, and mostly shining the light on, you know, the giants of whom they're standing on yeah. uh, throughout their combat experience and you know the teammates that we've lost and telling their stories uh, so that we can all learn from that. Uh, and they're very important stories that have to be told and if not told, People don't understand the sacrifices that our men and women go through to to serve and protect the freedoms we have to sit around and do podcasts. And you know. I
1: I would say I've read a couple of I'm going to use my air quotes seal books, right? Mm-hmm.
0: And, and that you're
1: you're spot on. Like the 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 takeaways from them are, you know, whatever the sort of organic uh points they're trying to make. But you get I lost, my brothers. Yeah, you get lots of that. Not in, and 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 then you get and these are these are these are men who lead led me. Yeah. You f- I feel like you get a lot of that in those books and yeah so it's-,
0: well, it's if you don't have at least a certain base level of humility going into <laughs> the program and the teams you will you will either get it or you won't get far right um and, and of course just going through combat in general and losing very very dear friends uh is is um is part of that journey, but it's, it's, it's uh, incredibly humbling, uh, as just part of that job. So the, the first book was a strategic, uh, move to build what is now taking point leadership, the company around the book. Gotcha. So it's a thought leadership piece. It also helped me do the right research, uh, to create the foundation of many of our principles around culture transformation and leadership development, employee engagement strategies. Uh, and, and then, so that was step one, uh, in 2017 and, uh, then built a, a business around it.
2: So let's talk about the business a little bit. What What are you doing outside of uh,
0: the book? So we uh, we're essentially a leadership and organizational development consulting firm. So we partner with clients and organizations uh you know some medium sized to mostly enterprise level organizations uh developing leaders and in- integrating employee engagement strategies uh, uh sometimes you know uh, fixing a broken or undefined culture as an organization usually it's a combination of all of that because all sure. organizations as we talked about before have the same struggles regardless of industry and often regardless of size obviously these things can get more matrixed and complex the larger the organization is or if it's global and there's you know uh, silos based on just geographical location uh, as well. Yeah. And uh, so we partner with our clients to do that. We try to make it as measurable as possible because uh, I've I've fallen short as a leader in my previous companies by bringing in consultants. We don't like that word, right? Yeah. <laughs> we are strategic partners um, where we did the training because we had to check the boxes. We're like, well, we should do training. I heard that's the thing you got to do. Everybody's doing it. You got to yeah. do it. Everybody's doing it. You got to develop your people, right? And then you just, you know, you do it. Like once, once a quarter, you bring in some dude who talks to the team for like half a day and people are Bored out of their minds and checking their email in the bathroom and (laughs) snarky on the side. Like, get a load of this, guy. Yeah. When can I get back to my superstar? Well, the people that would come in, like we talked about before, were, they were, and then, you know, not knocking anybody's career in that arena, but they were, they didn't garner a certain level of respect because they were consultants and they were just training us on things they'd been trained on. There wasn't a lot of diversity of experience um, when it comes to you know answering complex questions about real you know business challenges <laughs> well what about this what about this and they kind of navigate you know kind of <laughs> tap dance around you know those answers but you know that so that's our our goal and then obviously sprinkling in our approach and methodology and a lot of our you know sort of more or less proprietary curriculum comes from uh, some of the leadership development programs in the world of special operations specifically in naval special warfare mm-hmm. so integrating those things from how do we build high performance teams through better leadership better engagement, the right culture that's designed to achieve results uh, to generate better business outcomes? And how do we measure that against our you know financial performance?
1: What you said earlier, something I wrote down, I want to come back to but I think you said
0: so- something to the effect of all companies struggle from the same culture issues or something to this effect. I mean, wh- Mo- we always – Start a partnership with a client by doing some level of a needs analysis or an organizational assessment. It's kind of funny because it's it's very scalable. Because we're like, yep, same problems as the other company. That's right. They're an airline and they're a construction business. (laughs) I mean, what's the not the secret sauce
1: of it? What what is it? What's the what's the same struggle? Well, from a high level,
0: yeah. It's you know organizations are flawed because they're made up of people and people are inherently flawed and we're inconsistent regardless of you know I'm a student and teacher of leadership for example but I'm not a perfect leader by any means it's a lifelong journey of development and course correction and so oftentimes it's very much um, a uh, you know every organization has a culture whether they, they think they do or not it's usually haphazard very few organizations have a really good well defined culture or. They say they do and they put some stuff on the wall and they have their core values on the website and, but that's where it ends. Mm -hmm. It's not integrated into everything they do from talent acquisition to onboarding the right employees to how they develop people, how their rewards and recognition programs, how they talk about the culture, how they integrate the core values and externally, you know, partnering with the right clients and customers you know i've seen catastrophic failures in partnering with the wrong clients just because their money was green and they were going to invest a lot of you know time and resources into you know being our customer and those relationships in my experience never last mm-hmm. because there's a big vast difference between between values and, you know, and what's important and, you know, or they're beating up your, your, team and, you know, you're not defending your team and, and you put the customer first because they have a big retainer and they're paying you every month. And, you know, the board's like, no, we got to keep them. And they're like, well, five people are going to quit next week because <laughs> they're getting verbally abused on every call. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all of those things, um, are, are a challenge because most organizations are very inconsistent. If they do, uh, have, uh, Development programs and, and the investing people practices or culture initiatives or engagement strategies are just very inconsistent in doing it, and mm. many organizations just don't do it at all. One of the things you threw into that Smorgasbord was uh, like I forget what
1: it was. Basically, it was like uh, aligning your comp structure with your it, with your culture. I don't know exactly the yeah. words you
0: use, but I, that's the first time I've heard that integrated together. Well, for example, so one of the things we work with clients on is developing something we call a team charter. Uh it's basically you could you could call it a culture manifesto or what have you, mm-hmm. but it's taking your core values, you know, two steps deeper. So if like let's say integrity is one of your core values or a great cliche core value for any organization. Yeah. Well, what does that mean here in this organization? What are the supporting behaviors that we will document and measure performance against with every employee, including every leader, against that value of integrity? That's that's at least bullet point three behaviors that support our definition of integrity. Mm -hmm. And then the final layer is the accountability mechanisms, right? Well, how are we going to hold ourselves and others accountable to these three behaviors to support the value of integrity? And then, you know, we, we call it our results pyramid. How does that integrate? How do, what cultural experiences or rituals do we have or can build and, and, and create within our organization to support, The behavioral expectations and the values and the guiding principles. So they drive the appropriate actions that people proactively take to achieve the desired result. Yeah. That's your, that's your four tier pyramid there. And that's how you align behavior with, uh, you know, better business outcomes. And it's also how you create a culture of, uh, of extreme accountability. Lots of account, like that was the first thing I was thinking
1: of when you were talking about that. I kind of lost track of the tiers, but I think it's like the fourth tier is like figuring out how you, Culturally, what'd you say? It was uh, through culture or through um,
0: rituals. Rituals, yeah. 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 Create those opportunities to then head back up right. the pyramid. Well, it's That's it's like, really interesting. Like in the book, I equate. A lot, I like fitness analogies because it's it's really easy. So let's say your goal is to your desired outcome is to run a marathon under a certain time. You know, six months from now. Mm-hmm. Well, what rituals are you <laughs> speaking, speaking? That is a very no, specific Kevin goal. I, I, I got I got tired just saying it. Yeah, <laughs> and my back started hurting. Oh man, my, all
2: the chafing just sitting in this chair. <laughs> so quick scroll moment. I was in a Zoom meeting and I had just done my long run uh, the day before, and in the middle of the meeting, of me speaking, I had to shoot up because my hamstring cramped up, and everybody's watching me, and I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? Oh, I almost threw my back
0: up picking up a, a pencil off the floor this morning. <laughs> but uh, you're not yeah. old enough for that. I, I feel like I'm old enough for that. And my everyone, body's broken though. <laughs> <laughs> Accelerated path. Yeah. Carried around a lot of gear and jumping out of planes and it, uh, but yeah, you, you set a goal and you know, what rituals, what is my, what is my daily routine? What rituals do I need to put in place to ensure I achieve that goal? You know, what time do I get up? How do I train? What does that training look like? How do I set my right, the right mindset, uh, to be consistent in that training module? Those are rituals that help support, you know, that mindset shift towards achieving loftier goals. I
1: was thinking about that this morning. Actually, uh, I won't bore everybody with a story, but I was been awake since about three o'clock. Just couldn't sleep. You know, like that just ding in the middle of the night. And was had yep. been laying there and laying there and laying there. I was like, I just need to get up. Like, stop being lazy. Just get up. And then guess what happened at four thirty this morning? I was like, who's texting me at four <laughs> thirty? Was it me, Kevin? Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> I like I, I had that moment of like, it's four thirty this is going to be my first victory for the day after I've been away for a minute, You know, but I was like that, my alarm was set anyway. And I was like, I got to get, I got to get started with a W here up uh, because you text me. Otherwise I'd just been like, oh, I've been awake for a while. I got to get some sleep, you know,
2: man, pl- un- <laughs> plug that phone in, in the kitchen, get it out of there Buy old cheesy alarm clock. So I'm, I, I, yep. I'm
1: actively and aggressively pursuing that goal. Except the problem is I need to, I need something to like wake me up only not actually yeah. also. So I've been looking at like the, I think those Fitbits will do like the buzzy alarm thing. Yeah. Think I'm going to get one of those. Anyway.
0: No, I, I'm the same way because I, especially if I'm traveling or taking the first flight out, I got to get up at four or whatever. And okay. I don't want to. And with a, we have a newborn. So the newborn, you know, that is, they're sleeping in bed with you most of the time yeah. <laughs> in between breastfeeding and whatever yes. is going on. And so uh, I've been trying to find a, a good way other than my iPhone loud annoying alarm clock <laughs> yeah. waking everybody up.
1: <laughs> yeah, shout out Wes Butler. He was the one who told me that. He was like, you just need to invest in a ninety-five dollar Fitbit, and then yeah. you can just put that on, set the, and it'll just buzz you awake. And right. So I'm doing that. Just hadn't gotten to it yet. <laughs> Before
2: we jump out of this, I want to stay in it just for a second with the strategic partnership. When I'm reviewing this, I saw some buzzwords and I saw some uh, main concepts, and I, I had the start and end of the journey in mind when you team up with a company. And with the start, it's navigating and leading change in the workplace. So what's needed to make that successful and start taking off once you align with a company? Well, one of the things
0: we actually, before we start enacting uh, change initiatives within the organization, we Train them on how to lead change. <laughs> it's, which, and a lot of those principles, obviously, again, going back to the first book, taking point, uh, you know, how to lead change, how to get buy-in, how to communicate a change strategy, how to engage the participation of the majority of your organization. I mean, it's, it, it could be, and we could be talking about a major organizational transformation initiative or more small iterative projects, such as we're rolling out a new software mm. or project management or whatever it is. Um, but, you know, and this isn't my opinion, but, you know, all the data comes back the same pretty consistently, usually about 70% of organizational change initiatives either fail or fall significantly short of meeting their intended objectives. And it's usually not because of a you know, a bad plan or uh, you know uh, uh, an imperfect operating model. It's uh, it's it's people issues. It's inconsistency. It's that we don't take the time to communicate the vision of what the winning outcome looks like because change is uncomfortable. It usually requires more work instead of less work, and and, and com- consistently communicating uh, what the benefit of that initiative is going to be, so that people do buy in and they do participate consistently throughout the whole process. Because sometimes even you're initial change evangelists will experience the fatigue of change because it usually takes longer and has more hard and soft costs than we anticipate. And that's just the norm. And so even your evangelists start to pull back and participate less. And so all those reasons uh, and more are why initiatives typically fail or, or again, fall short of, of meeting the objective. And the more that happens, the less people are going to buy in next time there's a new initiative. So like, well, We've heard this song and dance. This is the flavor of the month, and here we go again. I'm gonna wait and see. I call that the fence sitter. They're gonna be like, well. Well, you have your three people. You have your 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 evangelists who are bought in. Usually, those are the more senior people whose idea it was.
2: <laughs> they're closer
0: <laughs> to the what the outcome looks like and why they're doing it. And you go do it. Yeah. And then you have your people in the middle who are gonna kind of kind of wait and see if this is a real thing. And then you have your agitators who are gonna push against it hard. We've Um, done it this way
1: for 20 years. There's no way I'm doing
0: it right. Yeah, exactly. And and oftentimes, though, you have to listen to those people. Oftentimes, those people have valid reasons because if we don't go through a process of most change initiatives fail because they start on step six and should start on step one, and you haven't engaged the feedback also of all those people, especially the people who are closer to the customer or closer to the front line or closer to that process that's going to change, well, we should probably get some ideas and feedback from them before they're especially if they're, if they're the ones who are going to have to roll it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes we skip that process. Those people push back. And uh, if they're not listened to or heard, it becomes very toxic and cancerous. And then that cancer grows. And oftentimes those agitators are listened to because they have subject matter expertise or yeah. tenure or both. So people listen like, well, Frank. I think Frank's right. You know, I'm not going to participate in this. And then you have a big divide <laughs> oh, yeah. and then it fails and then it fails again. And then you have, you know, so you create those culture gaps too, where, uh, you know, the organization isn't successful in any type of, uh, ability to lead change.
1: Man, you know, earlier you felt like he was talking to you about that marathon thing. Yeah. That's we're in the middle of trying and I won't, won't put anybody on blast, but we're in the middle of trying to initiate or lead some change on a small subcommittee. And we had that, that one of those moments you talked about middle of last week where some of the evangelists were like, I'm out. Yeah. They kind of like reached the tipping point and, uh, boy, there's a lot of, there's a lot of rich, even those like this four minutes right there, a lot of rich, like speaking directly to me about something I'm expressly working on right now. Just trying to help you out, buddy. Yeah, appreciate
0: that. <laughs> just fill us in the, the mail. Put that, yeah, put that, <laughs> on, put that, that invoice on. just got a little bigger
2: with <laughs> the flight, with the plane flight. Yeah, just put it up there. <laughs> so then we fast forward to call it the end of the journey, and you might debunk that. But what I envision is, you have a team of qualified professionals that bring energy, great ideas, and start getting the business you're speaking into to start acting on those ideas, and you start seeing the change. How do you sustain that once you pull out?
0: Oh, it can be it can be pretty difficult, and that's oftentimes why, and this benefits us too. Obviously, is our clients stay with us for a long time. Also, and also too, if they're, you know, just there's general turnover or there's new people coming in or people, uh, you know, who are have upward mob- mobility and organization are taking over these initiatives to make sure that they're trained. So there's a train the trainer element too, but also usually these programs, we want to make sure they last long enough. So there is consistency in the new actions because culture change or behavioral change or mindset shift doesn't happen at the beginning of a transformation. It happens at the end. Mm-hmm. You have to put in the best practices and the new procedures and the new, uh, you know, the new actions that need to be taken just like almost every business has had to do over the past year due to COVID.
2: Okay.
0: Uh, and they, they start, you know, you got to start sometimes on tier two of that results pyramid on, okay, we got to shift to new, new actions, new best practices, uh, new procedures, how do we lead and manage remote teams? You know, how do we show up? Uh, how do we engage your remote workforce? Uh, and what practices are we going to put in place to make sure we do that well? And then gradually over time, the you know the culture shifts towards the new way of doing things, hopefully, but not always. Um, so you have to make sure that the organizations have the right accountability mechanisms over the course of that whatever that engagement is. But again, a lot of our um, clients stay with us for years because they understand the the return on investment for. Making sure these things continue. And then the organization changes or it grows or there's new priorities that we need to you know work with them on. So.
2: Yeah, the huge thing is saying the piece about the culture and mindset shift happens at the end, not the beginning. So yeah. the sales pitch isn't to change the mindset. It's the opportunity and potential behind it. Yeah. Day one, here's your new culture. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no, I wrote it down. Buckle it's up. Right
0: here. <laughs> See? Like, what is your right. down. So
2: this is you now. Welcome to your new identity. Yeah, it Hold it on. Let me read $29. it. <laughs> Let me read that first. Oh, yeah. It stuck. Yeah, it did work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so the other, other cool thing we talked about at lunch, uh, that total gut punch for me and uh, our journey is – the idea of 360 reviews. So yeah. you want to talk about the importance of that and the framework of that? We almost always integrate that into – especially like obviously
0: leadership and management uh, training programs uh, because you want to take a data-driven approach to it. <laughs> you want to see what is your baseline, what are you working with, how do you customize a program to that, and then also how do you integrate one-on-one uh, development, action planning, and coaching for the individuals you know, in that cohort of managers who are going through the leadership program. And uh, you know, I learned this process by doing 360s, you know, myself at my last two companies. And oftentimes, people don't invest. You know, we all think, "Oh, well, we got to you know do this because you know, things aren't going well." But uh, I remember uh, <laughs> with one of my previous companies, things were going great. You know, there were no threats on the horizon. We were doubling in size. The board was happy. Customers were happy. It was just all you know, roses and sunshine. Every day, and which is a really good test of your leadership capability. Yeah. Uh, no bullets flying whatsoever. And so <laughs> clearly. You know, clearly all that success rolls up to this guy right here, <laughs> me, the <laughs> awesome leader of the organization. And I was like, well, you know, but I also, well, like we talked about earlier, I heard that people are supposed to do these, get the feedback from the team. So I was like, the feedback's going to be good, so screw it, let's do it anyways. I can, and it'll I just, can use this one. Yeah, it'll just be some affirmation yeah. <laughs> uh, for how awesome I am. So we rolled out a, a, the 360 <laughs> process for just a few of the senior leaders and founders, and to, to start there, and then we're going to sort of cascade it down you know, to other uh, director levels and then and below. And, and uh, and so we, it was a. There's different versions of the 360. It was a pretty robust one. So the report came out, printed it out. It's like 35 pages of data and feedback. And for those listeners who don't understand, uh, it's an anonymous peer review process. So they call it a 360 because, in a best case scenario, it's people, your peers are reviewing you. Your direct reports are reviewing you, and if you have people above you, they're reviewing you too. And you see there's an other category, meaning you can select a few other respondents to participate. Um, and obviously we've, you, you first really should educate people on why you do a 360, what is the outcome? So you go into it with the right mindset because it's a little bit uncomfortable because you're getting transparent, anonymous feedback (laughs) from people. And, uh, so I printed this thing out and I remember I I got on a, I was flying from San Diego to New York to meet with a client and, you know, I sat back and I was really excited and ordered a cocktail. I was like, all right, stretch it out a little bit. Let's look at this bad boy, (laughs) you know, page one. I'm like, Okay, let's, you know, look at the numbers. is like not quite where I – not quite. The average is not quite where I expected to be. And then I started – then, of course, I just jumped straight to the comments. <laughs> the, the comment section is where the, the, the respondent gets the opportunity to expand upon their feedback. And they get – some people get very specific because – well, and, and – as they should, you, you, you also educate the participants in why we're doing this. This is your opportunity to have a voice and improve the organization, improve the managers and leaders in the organization. And ultimately it's going to benefit you, uh, as, as a team member of the organization. And so, especially those, oftentimes it's not, you know, you're, your disengaged or actively disengaged people who are, you know, bitching and moaning about stuff. Oftentimes your highest performers are like, great, I'm going to show everybody what's broken in the organization. I'm going to show Brent what he's doing wrong every day. <laughs> so the first comment was what exactly does Brent as the CEO do all day long? <laughs> I was like, oh, that's not good. <laughs> Rough start. This then, must be then, someone else's report. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then other yeah, this, this this is flawed. And then, you know, other small things like what is our vision? What's our strategy? Who mm. are we as an organization? Where are we headed? How are we going to get there? Like people had really no clue because in my mind we had clearly articulated what the vision and strategy were, but we, we clearly hadn't. You know, it was all living mostly here in my cerebral cortex. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, a few more cocktails later, a little more crying, <laughs> sniffling. Yeah. <laughs> I went through the stages of grief, the surprise, the anger, the rationalization. You know, the comments sometimes too are so specific. You're like, well, I know who wrote that, so I'm firing that guy tomorrow. (laughs) Banker's box, Brad. You're out. You're out of here, Brad. (laughs) I didn't really want to give you a voice. (laughs) Brad. (laughs) If you're Brad out there listening, it's- Yeah, no offense. This This isn't you, man, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) So- uh, <laughs> you have to go through some of the you know the digestion. Um, so you know it's not about turning lemons into lemonade. It's about better digesting the lemons and using that as as feedback to improve yourself, improve the organization, and that going back to the philosophy of ownership and accountability. Well, if you want a culture of that, where does that start? Well, it starts with me, uh, and being disciplined in that regard. And if people see that I. Not just accept, but crave their feedback on a regular basis on how I can improve or how the organization can improve, then they start behaving that way too. We have that very much that peer to peer feedback learning culture in the SEAL teams. That's where, you know, I kind of uh, learned about uh, the importance of really good transparent feedback and creating a, a feedback loop and culture around that so that you can learn quickly and course correct quickly. Not, you know, not, don't wait for the, mid-year conversation or your QBR, or, you know, <laughs> an end of year review to give someone on your team feedback. And these, these days it needs to be, you know, a little more, sometimes even more informal and regular. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I did was I, I put a plan together, built a presentation and, you know, called a, a meeting and it started as a company wide meeting. Uh, to, you want to make sure first, am I hearing this right? Here's some of the main things that I, took from this report, are the insights, uh, and ask some clarifying questions on, am I hearing this correctly? And if so, great. I'm putting that on the list of developmental opportunities mm-hmm. for me or for the organization and things like that. So it's it's uncomfortable, but if you start doing it on a regular basis, it's a, a phenomenal way to develop yourself, develop others, and, and also, again, shift the culture towards one of, uh, of uh, transparency and accountability and discipline and, and the fact that we will learn from each other. And, it's, uh, and that's really a core tenet of a high-performing team.
2: Just the framework of that yeah. makes me want this as opposed to being afraid of what's coming. And I would assume that's the natural progression of 360s. As you get them more and more, you start craving it. Like, how can we get better? How can I get better yeah. so we get better? Yeah, and just, just
0: in its simplest form, just going through the process with a team shows – Positive intent of we want to develop, we want to get better. I want to get better as your leader, and and that builds trust. And, and trust, you know, again, is you know one of the you know trust and accountability are the two most important culture pillars of any high performing organization. Pin that, pin that. I'll let you guys have that
2: one. Yeah, you get, is that <laughs> over free? That no, was that's free. That's not going on the invoice. That's okay, fine. good. good, good, good. <laughs> Quoted by Kevin Carey. <laughs> the the uh, I man, I've never done it.
1: The three sixty thing. I've, I think y'all done it before, haven't you? Haven't you done one? We've done
2: surveys, but no, not 360. Yep. We need to do a 360.
1: My instinct is exactly like yours was, which is like I have blind spots, and the only way I'm going to find them is if we do something yep. similar to this. And then my second one was like kind of probably more what you were talking about I was like I just want to hear how awesome I am. I don't really actually <laughs> want the bad. I don't really want the bad feedback. So that was a real like roller coaster of emotion that had immediately simultaneously. But it, I mean, your to your point though originally. Which is, it has to be the pillar of a high performing team. Like you have to, you have to have a
0: feedback loop. Yeah, and oftentimes, of course, it's you're going to get some some feedback and data that you expected to have, or you kind of already, you know, uh, know is a reality. But oftentimes, because we always ask, you know, and our team asks the the people with are coaching through the process is, you know, mainly we're like what what stood out to you, what what was what did blindside you?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that's a good question. And it
0: doesn't happen all the time, but sometimes somebody's like, yeah, I, this was nowhere near on my radar. Uh, just like when I went through it, the well, yeah. Because
1: you stuff. get like, from, and I don't know what mine would be, but just hypothetically speaking, you get the like every once in a while he's a little angry about things, and you're like, yeah, nah, I knew that was coming, yeah. But not, with like, he's not compassionate, and he hates my family. I'm like, whoa, I didn't know that. <laughs> that's Brad. Yeah, that's why you're fired. Brad. Classic, yeah. classic Brad. It's <laughs> gonna be the title of the episode. <laughs> yeah, Brad, you're fired. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pack your box, Brad.
0: Again, no offense to the breath
2: That's right. <laughs> okay, so I want to transition to the second book. Embrace the suck. Yeah, man, really well written. I really enjoyed going through it, and I've—I don't think I've ever seen a book that opens with a forward that really sets the tone for the book. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, yep. all right, embrace the suck. It's a you know a sealed term, eth- part of the ethos. I think I, you could it's a military me. term, yeah, right. Yeah. And what changed in my mindset when a about to get through this book was don't just wish for uh good weather, you know, expect bad weather, hope for bad weather, yeah. hope for adversity. Don't wish for things to be smooth, hope for it to be rocky. And then you get onto the start of the book. So man, well done frameworking that, but I guess let's go back up high level. Embrace the Suck, yep. your newest book forward by, the beast, David Goggins. <laughs> yeah, David and I, uh,
0: we went through buds together uh, for, I'm sure many of your listeners know who he is, uh, retired seal, a uh, world renowned ultra uh, athlete and broken some Guinness world records, like in pull-ups and probably some other stuff. Um, we were his third class, so he had, he had been at Bud's for 10 months, uh, gotten injured in both Hell Weeks. So he'd done Hell Week a couple times, or at least the, a good portion of Hell Week twice already, which I literally can't imagine. <laughs> I'm like, I got to be one and done. I don't want to do this more than once. Right. <laughs> I'm not that strong, right? <laughs> mentally or physically. And so he rolled into our class. And I just remember, you know, just a beast of a guy, I didn't smile. I wouldn't smile either if I'd been at Bud's for 10 months. Um, but- uh, Like it just <laughs> embraces suck, I guess. Yeah.
1: Right? yeah. Holy man. And so
0: he was in my boat crew. So we- he talks a lot about boat crew too. And so we were, I was in boat crew too. Um, Just some hard dudes in that boat crew. A buddy of mine, Drew Sheets, he'd been a logger up in Washington. You know, never, I don't think he'd ever like swam in the ocean before, but just a hard, hard dude. (laughs) He he finished hell week with two broken shins and just kept his mouth shut because he didn't want to get medically rolled uh, during hell week. If you, if you, uh, if you get rolled back for an injury, for example, on like Wednesday, then you got to do it all over again. You start at the very beginning. So if it's like Thursday and your leg's broken or whatever, they'll usually roll you forward. So you'll pick up with the next class after their whole week. Uh-uh. So a lot of people and myself included, I had a fractured elbow. I had uh, severe uh, um, flesh eating bacteria in my right leg, uh, joint injuries in both, you know, both legs. And you just got to keep your mouth shut. You know, <laughs> at MedShack, you're like, I'm good. <laughs> good to <Right. you> go. <laughs> As the tears are streaming down your face. And so, uh so when I, uh, you know, was inspired to write the second book, the second book for the listener, Embrace the Suck, first of all, is a military term. It basically says, look, you know, the battlefield, and we can use that term figuratively, the battlefield is hard. <laughs> Don't just expect it to be hard, like want it to be hard. No, it's going to be hard and lean into it, you know, yeah. find ways and tools and a mindset to move more quickly from – you know the bunker of normal human emotion when adversity strikes of you know causal thinking why me why this why now why covid <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. why am i losing my business and clients uh you know why are we losing life uh, uh, you know and moving more quickly into action oriented execution taking stock of your current situation focusing on what's in your control mm-hmm. and not ignoring the rest because you want situational awareness but using that to develop a plan and continue to step back onto the battlefield of life, of business, what have you. And, um, you know, so it's really about, you know, learning to use pain and suffering and adversity as a pathway to enlightenment and wisdom, you know, putting better constraints on ourselves so that we can avoid temptation and all the shiny objects that derail us from achieving the goals we had already set. Uh, learning how to set better goals, loftier goals, take a little more calculated risk. You know, planning better, executing better, debriefing with yourself on a constant basis, so you can you know be in a constant state of improvement, doing all those things to really you know live a more purpose-driven, fulfilling, meaningful life, where you give back to causes greater than yourself, and you achieve or exceed more of the goals you set, uh, and, and you know learning how to use adversity as a stepping stone to to growth, um, so that you can continually bounce back faster. So when I was coming up with the concepts, really you know I had never. The book falls into the self-help genre. And I was like, hmm. Well, I've never read a self-help book before. I was like, that's for losers. You know? I don't need any help. <laughs> Which of course I do. We all do. And so I was like, well, maybe I should maybe I should read some self-help books. Ooh, you and get so, a wide variety of Oh my god, gold. I had no idea. It's like a multi-billion dollar industry, books and and podcasts and things like that being at the at the top. Yeah. And so you know, I did some research to find – You know, I ordered a bunch of books on Amazon, and um, some of them I read fully. Some of them I flipped through. A lot of just fluff and happy talk and just a bunch of BS that, that I didn't connect with, but very popular books that obviously a lot of people do connect with. Uh, but I connect with things that are more actionable. Uh, I, I like some of the books that I read that are a little more gritty and counterintuitive. I love Mark Manson's work. It's very creative, like the subtle art of not giving an F. Mm-hmm. Um, and his second book, aptly titled uh, Everything is – left a book about hope <laughs> <laughs> like the best subtitle ever seen associated with that title and uh and i i liked his style also didn't i didn't see a lot you know as much actionable stuff as i wanted to put into a book as far as tools i call them mental models in each yeah. chapter um so if we're you know talking about a chapter i know we'll get into this in a bit you know about how to be more successful in avoiding temptation, okay, mm-hmm. cool, what is the model? what's the mental model that I can use what's what rituals do I need to put in place? well, just don't just be strong, yeah just yeah just be more hardcore
1: yeah <laughs> right I, I
0: think that's a I think you hear a lot of that just and you're like cool
1: how
2: uh-huh right, right, <laughs> right, right well, those are so we call the tagline for us is wisdom nuggets yeah uh, what what do we pull from this episode or books, et cetera so the two main ones I had from this book rewind to reading living with a seal, and the mindset is. It's 20 degrees, but in your head it's 75 and sunny. So that's what I ran with. I thought it was a good thing. <laughs> Embrace the suck, change that. It was no, it's 30 degrees and, s- and snowing and smile. Yeah. Smile like a yeah. psychopath on the s- sidewalk yeah. because you wanted it and you know you're going to be tougher from right. that adversity. Yeah. So that was the biggest thing that I pulled from that book, just my mindset shift of just getting a little bit stronger. Well, and-
0: on, on that point, you know, going back to the forward that David wrote. So I was like, well, I want to write out like a gritty, more in your face, raw. Self help book. And it, it does draw on many of the leadership development, you know, principles that we actually teach leaders because you can't develop, you can't generate better results in a team unless you generate better performance of the people. <laughs> so it's very much a personal development uh, strategy. So that was what kind of was the you know, foundation of the inspiration of writing this type of book. And, I, and it, it was a really fun project. I was like, well, who better to write a book about resilience than my buddy David? Yeah. Um, and so, one of the interesting things about the Ford, not to give it all away, but uh, a very interesting, fascinating, but unfortunate story is one of my uh, my most recent mentee, uh, I had met him, th- my wife met his mom, they live in Rancho Santa Fe in California, that's where he grew up. Very similar path to mine. Went to college, was working in finance in Miami, and then just decided to become a SEAL. And I have so much respect for these guys now, and obviously men and women who join the military during wartime, mm-hmm. because especially in special operations, you're at the tip of the spear and you're going to go downrange to take the fight to the enemy. It is inevitable. Um, obviously, things fluctuate, but more likely than not, you are going to go on a combat deployment, mm-hmm. not just a deployment. And so I, uh, you know. My wife, Nicole, had come home for this charity event. She's like, oh, I met this amazing woman. She's so awesome. And her son uh, is uh, in boot camp right now. He's going to Buds. I was like, cool, you know, you know, get me in touch with him. A week later, uh, and this was a week before he was checking into to Buds, his mom died of a brain aneurysm out of nowhere in Manhattan in a limo. Wow a week before his mom dies a week before he checks into what's arguably the hardest military training program in the world. Uh, so of course, for some people that would crush, 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 crush their spirit. Um, and other people find ways to use pain as a, you know, as a fuel, uh, for their journey, which is what he was able to do. And, uh, you know, I I mentored him all through buds and, and he had a, a little bit of a rough go, like actually the majority of people do. Uh, he got a back injury right before hell week. So they rolled him back. So he's, you know, Uh, doing the rollback thing for a few months and then he classed up again when he was healed. And then he made it through. And that's the thing I love about uh about Hell Week is it like it doesn't ever rain in San Diego, but God knows when Hell Week comes. (laughs) Because come Sunday night, it's freaking pouring rain. You're like, oh, there must be a Hell Week going on. (laughs) Literally, our Hell Week was a winter Hell Week, and it rained every single day. Every day. And so Uh, before, um, he was about to start, uh, the start hell week, you know, I texted David. I was like, David, it'd be really cool. I know you're busy, man. It'd be really cool if you could like send a video or like a text or something, a little message to to my guy, Charlie, before he goes, you know, he's had a little bit of rough, rough ride so far, you know. Other than the fact, obviously, he lost his mom, too. And uh, about an hour later, David responded with with, and I put the text in the forward and it is just the most gut punch. And of course, using David's classic, very colorful language, (laughs) we won't use it all in the show. Um, (laughs) He doesn't hold back in that regard. Basically, kind of to your point, you know, he said, you know, he said he starts off by saying, like, what are you going to do? when you're so cold your balls are in your stomach all you do is want to quit your boat crew's quitting you know and you're you're miserable it's cold he's like you better pray For the weather to be the worst possible weather. Pray for it to be the hardest hell week anybody's ever gone through. And, and it goes on and on and on. It's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. And so that's that mindset. Like you said before, don't, don't just like, okay, I'm going to navigate this adversity. No, want it. You've got to lean far into it and expect it. And the more you do, that is part of sort of the mental model that is the foundation of the book is being proactive in the fine art of comfort zone expansion, being intentional in how you do it. Find the things that make you uncomfortable, but that are imperative for achieving a specific goal or the things that you're not good at that you really probably should be better at and find the roadblocks and the things that will make you cringe that stand in the way of achieving that goal and then practice them with intent on a regular basis and then after time of course those things aren't so uncomfortable anymore and they become you know things that seem possibly insurmountable become part of your everyday life and then you move the goalposts and you do it again it becomes part of your mindset
2: transformational if you can if you can Grab onto that and take action. Right. Yep. Okay. Other one. You kind of teased it a little bit, uh, but there's a section in there taming temptation tiger, and that <laughs> that that rang home true on a on a lot of levels for me. But go ahead. And take off with that concept. Yeah, bit. it uh, that was a fun,
0: fun part of the chapter, right? Because I actually created a persona around who Temptation Tiger is. <laughs> <laughs> this evil like thing Tony, the Tony the Tiger, yeah, he's a classic no. guy. He wears a smoking jacket and an ascot tie, and you know, he drinks <laughs> martinis <laughs> and perfectly groomed fur, you know. Pearly white teeth, uh, and engages in extreme debauchery on a regular basis. And, uh, and really the, the, the chapter is about, cause the book is very much about uh, achieving goals. The book is not necessarily, uh, designed to help someone who is <laughs> at complete rock bottom. It's, it's also very much speaks to, I believe, people who, um, who just want to get better. It's a, right. sort of a good to great. Strategy. I want to push past my current comfort zone. I want to push past my cur- current level of achievement in anything in your personal and professional life. Um, but at the same time, it has. I have gotten a lot of messages that it has helped people who are battling cancer or who just lost a child and things like that. So that's very um, humbling and, and awesome, really, to, to know that it can touch people in that way. But uh, chapter four is about putting better constraints on ourselves so that we can be more proactive in how we avoid temptation. And again, not temptation to do drugs or be led down a dark path to do bad things, but just the distractions we have in our life constantly, in our businesses constantly, the things that get in the way of achieving initial goals that we set, the shiny objects that constantly fly past our face. We're, Ooh, that seems like a good idea. And then next thing you know, you're going down a different path, and you're inconsistent in how you pursue goals personally and professionally. Uh, so the mental model from that chapter really is about uh, – it kind of goes into a lot of what I talk about, about having a better plan of what you're trying to accomplish and knowing what your threats and blockages are, knowing mm-hmm. what the potential temptations are going to be and listing them documenting them, putting that as part of your plan. Okay, You know what? I know where I fall short in this. I know where I'm weak and need to be better when it comes to uh, being tempted to you know, do things that I shouldn't or things that are going to get away in achieving that goal. And uh, and once you kind of list those and make those part of your uh, you know, strategic imperative when it comes to achieving those goals, then you're more likely to have those things on your radar screen and be able to – and you will fall short, but you're able to course correct more quickly.
1: There's something – we talked about this last week. There is something about writing it down Mm -hmm. that is powerful. And we were talking about it with Elias last week about his journaling, remember? Yep. And I feel like journaling sort of is in vogue and out of vogue, writing it down. And and I got in a bad road of like, oh, I'm just going to do it on my iPad. That's different. Like, keyboarding
0: it doesn't work. 100%. Keyboarding it doesn't work. And and some people – some people like doing that. I'm very much a write it down kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I'm a to-do list guy. You know, I like and I do like uh, you know people are like oh, journaling. <laughs> journaling. I'm not going to journal. It's- Read about that in a yeah. self-help book yeah, once. My, my seven-year-old daughter journaled. again journal. <laughs> um, but uh, but it, it is. And to your point, and that's a very interesting point. Writing it down, handwriting it down, journaling, or making lists and things like that, and not have to get it on your you know on your iPhone or your iPad. It's uh, you know, that's everything in this right here. This (laughs) this book I'm holding is everything that I need to do every single day. You know, I was just
1: about to say, probably with about ninety to ninety five percent hit rate, the people who have sat in that chair over the last, you know, nine months or so have a journal sitting right by them. Yep. Everybody brings one. Yep. Right? And here that's I funny. am with a <laughs> piece of paper I didn't write anything on. Uh, well,
0: that says a lot about you. <laughs> I think it does, actually. Just
1: off the just gunslinger seat in my pants. That's our roll.
0: Well, it, it's the same. Like having something available like this, like I might think of something in our conversation, like well, we need to write that down. And it, for me, if I don't write it down and then, you know, f- and follow up on it consistently, you know, we're busy. I'll forget. It's gone.
2: Yeah, it's gone. Mm-hmm. It w- or it won't happen. Yeah. Um, well, that's that's why it was so important to me, Taming Temptation Tiger. I kind of correlated it with habits and choices. I was coincidentally yep. reading Atomic Habits with Embrace yeah. the Suck at the same time, well, and what a combination!
0: I uh, I quote James Clear in uh, in the in the book. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, you know, and uh, and then Atomic Habits. I've I've haven't read the whole thing, but just awesome stuff in there. Oh
2: man, they're, they're just so good. But the how I how I can tame temptation tiger is being self-aware. You kind of yeah. hit on that. I have to know where uh, I'm weak and where I can become weak. And when that moment or opportunity or whatever comes up, that this doesn't align with who I'm trying to become. Right. And that's how I've been mm-hmm. able to take those words and apply it to my daily life. And I fall short a lot, yeah. but it's making me better and making me self-aware that that doesn't align with who I'm trying to become. And it's about something bigger than me. I'm trying to lead people and make an impact and lead my family. And if these things are blocking that, then I need to do the right thing and get rid of them. Yeah. it's it's
0: When you say it that way, it's so simple. It's again, going back to put better constraints on yourself so you don't have to be tempted because we're human. We will fall short in those areas where we're kind of weak. So if you're trying to use a simple analogy, if you're trying to lose weight and get in better shape, don't say, well, I need to have a little bit more discipline when it comes to that junk food in the, in the pantry. <laughs> well, just get rid of it. <laughs> right. Or like, I need to drink less. So, well, stop buying the huge handles of Tito's. <laughs> 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 <Just> stop. <laughs>
1: well, that's junk food is kind of, kind of hitting home there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sorry,
0: man. Sorry. <laughs>
1: now
2: I feel like Brad.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: Brad.
2: <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. So what, one more thing on that book. I just wanted to share funny moment. I'm on the second leg I, for my 10K run. There's an electrical box that I slap, and then I turn back yep. around. And when I turn back around, that's why I loved your book, because I could get lost in it a little bit. You were talking about your sibling, and I, I, I think the sibling won like the Chicken Nugget Award or some in my my son. <laughs> oh, it was your son?
0: This was a, there was a subtitle in this one chapter uh about the about the everybody gets a trophy culture. That's that right. We have right now and I was joking on my uh, my uh, well, not my youngest son, we have a newborn. So my uh now 5-year-old son last year when he was 4 he and his sister were, they were playing soccer and you know I was a seal I was uh I was hoping for a little more discipline and accountability when it comes to training and mindset on and off the battlefield. And, you know, how young <laughs> soccer games are. It's just yeah. a bunch of Catholic kids aren't even paying attention. I mean, he's chasing a butterfly and yep. picking his nose. In the, the rest of them are un- all standing in a four-foot circle. Yeah, like just cuddle ball. <laughs> and, you know, most of the time, R- Riders his name is, if he did ever connect with the ball, he kicked it in the wrong direction. <laughs> right. Anyways, he, um, and that you know, at the end of the, End of the, the season, the coach you know rounded everybody up, and he was doing a trophy ceremony, and and of course everybody was getting a trophy. And, you know, I don't think they won a single game, but um, but they're four, so who really cares, right? right. And uh, he was like, "All right." So there was this one game before I tell the story. There was this one game where the uh, one of the parents had brought in snacks for halftime, and usually you think like juice boxes and orange slices. The person <laughs> they brought like a whole box of huge chicken fingers, <laughs> for a, a halftime snack. I was yeah. like, "That's the strangest." Halftime soccer snack for four year olds I've ever seen, uh, and so Ryder grabbed himself a chicken finger, and then before the the second half started, he grabbed another one and took it took it onto the battlefield, and so he was just wandering around aimlessly eating a massive chicken finger, and I was, I, it was hysterical, obviously, and um, and so go it was Ryder's turn to get his trophy, and the coach was you know in that voice you talk to four year olds, and say, like, "All right, everybody." Who who knows who the next trophy goes to? I'll give you a hint. He likes to aimlessly roam the field and eat large chicken fingers, and you know all the hands. it's Ryder. It's Ryder, and he he went up to you know he was so happy, and the whole ride home he was like, "Can you believe it? It's my first trophy!" And we got home and I snatched that trophy right out of his hand. I said, "We do not celebrate mediocrity in this house." And he burst into tears. And and of course, I'm kidding. I, uh, you know, happily helped him find a prominent place for that trophy in his in his room, and congratulated him once again on a successful season. <laughs> oh, <laughs> All right, so okay. right there, so real. I have. Oh my gosh,
2: <laughs> so, St- hold the presses. Yeah. So you. He does the dramatic pause while you're listening to it, and I said out loud, "No freaking way!" He did not say that, <laughs> and then you go on a course of kidding. I'm like, oh, "I can't believe so, I, I, did the, the, on I did that." I did the one. exact opposite of that. Right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, sure. I, like I said that you know in that part, I was like, "When, you know, when is it? Is is it ever too early to teach our kids to embrace the suck? And when is it too late? You know, because well, yeah, that you know that very much is a you know a, a bur- the burden of command of being a parent is you know." Doing the hard stuff and saying no. You need to say no to more stuff, by the way, if you're overcommitted. Oh yeah, so. this is I'm working <laughs> aggressively. We'll take that offline. Yeah. I'm
1: aggressively <laughs> working on that. Um is that is that like rhetorical? When is it too
0: early to teach to teach someone to embrace a suck? Or is that like is that real? Like, no, have, I mean an I, 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 I reference it. I don't really answer it in the book. It's just sort of a question to invoke some thought around, you know, how we parent. You know, like yeah. one of my developmental opportunities. You know, people always think they assume because of my background as a SEAL that I'm like the hardcore militant one in the house. Where it's you know Nicole, my wife, <laughs> is much more strict than I am. I'm like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I need to do I need to do a better job of that because obviously you can you can inadvertently create you know some well not lifelong necessarily, but some lingering impact on you know on their behavior and their mindset and how how they think about adversity uh, when they're just given everything they want and yeah. there's no real hardship. Um, well the reason I asked that is like very
1: specifically for me because like we go through those moments in our house, right? And and the ebb and flow where you're just like man, we live in suburbia Dallas and my yeah. like, kids never want for anything right. and then you know there'll be a discussion about whether or not we're going to get you know, hamburgers or hot dogs for dinner and it
0: turns into full-scale warfare. And it's like, what, <laughs>
1: what are we talking – like, dude, yeah.
0: you know? Or other people out there are like wondering if they're going to get dinner. Yes, you know? and, yeah, uh, yeah. It's not to be cliche, but you, you know what I mean? It's, it's you know, I, we live in a Rancho Santa Fe and, you know, a nice neighborhood and our kids go to great schools and there's like no hardship on the horizon. And uh, so sometimes you have to, you know, manufacture that hardship by, you know, you know, giving them harder stuff to do and more responsibility, and you know, if they don't learn
1: it in your house, life will teach it to them, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of what I'm wrestling with right now. Is like I I have to figure out how to manufacture it because yeah. if they leave my house thinking it's sunshine and rainbows out there, yeah, life is not going to be and, kind to them, and they'll have a
0: tougher time navigating, yeah, you know, complexity, right. and adversity, uncertainty. If we don't give them at least some baseline of of tools mm-hmm. uh, of what they're uh, gonna, you know. In inevitably experience. Them. Right.
1: I'm going to make the, I'm going to make the boys read the book.
0: Just do hardcore. Embrace the suck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my children. I keep asking Tyler, my 14 year old, like, when are you going to read it? He's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, much of a reader. I'm like, you really need to read this book though. <laughs> what's, these what's, are my expectations of you young man.
2: That's right. This is our family and houses core values.
0: <laughs> what are your kids into these days? Uh, Tyler's uh, he goes to a cool school called Cathedral Catholic in in San Diego plays football Um, and then Parker Rose she's into horseback riding and takes ukulele lessons, of all things. <laughs> ukulele's super popular these days. Yeah, I was like, where did this come from? This is a thing? Yeah, but,
1: the, the, uh, the, I feel like uh, America's Got Talent
0: made the ukulele popular. Yeah, that's maybe a hot that's where it came opinion. from. But yeah, she does it every week. And uh, she uh, is very much into writing, which I was very disappointed about because it's uh, can be Insanely a, expensive. a very, very expensive hobby. <laughs> yes. And we live in a very equestrian area. So I was like, oh, come on. Don't you have anything
2: else? Like, <laughs> Are there any mule mini, riding lessons? Mini golf? <laughs>
0: yeah, or something you could just do at home? Mule riding. <laughs> you know who
1: rides a mule?
0: Brad. Yeah. Oh, Brad is a big he's a big mule guy. He's a big mule guy. Oh, <laughs> uh, and and uh the fr- rider, rider, he uh he's 5. He's you know, he's into, you know, superheroes yeah, and right. stuff like that. And uh, and then uh, Walker, who's eight months is into breastfeeding. <laughs> <laughs> Who isn't, <Yeah>. you know? <laughs>
1: oh, baby in the house, man. My buddy, Tim, uh, they've, I, I think probably today or yesterday, I've adopted a, an infant, a new baby. And I'm just like, Oh man. Cause he has like older kids. I'm like, yeah. well,
0: yeah, it's uh, yeah. Talk about hitting the reset button, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. right. Was, in, in where we live, I was like, "Who are all these old dads here at preschool?" In <laughs> <elementary>? <laughs> and I'm like, "Shit!" Now I'm going to be one of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's you, man. Yeah. Oh, I'm my. the old dad. That's <laughs> right. Well, not yet, but you I will be. be. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be that guy yeah. who's sixty and dropping the kid off in eighth grade or whatever. <laughs> I've
1: found with my kids, that progressively have, have like, like, man, I. Can't. I can't get super involved in school. I'm overcommitted everywhere else. So poor Stella, our eight-year-old. I'm just like, I don't know who her teacher is. Like, I just like, I can't can't keep up with everything, man. Can't do it all. Can't do it all. All right. We've been going for a minute here. I think unless, uh, Kevin, you're our notes taker. Did we miss something? No, notes unless keeper. if you want to
2: talk about anything that's next in the oh, journey yeah. or one what's, thing. It- yeah.
1: No,
0: what's next for you, man? Two books. What's next? Uh, for us, just continue to, to, to build the company. Um, and in spare time, obviously focus on, on our, our fire team of four children. Um, but, uh, yeah, just, just really, and doing a little bit of, you know, rebuilding uh, of the organization. COVID kind of stalled us a little bit because much of what we do traditionally was in person and yeah. live events and, you know, Speaking at events is a, is a great revenue stream for us, but also uh, a great business development strategy. So you know, rebuilding those things, and and um, you know, obviously, uh, keeping a close eye on you know the, the progression of COVID and its its impact on organizations. But uh, but yeah, just keep forging ahead. And uh, my daughter wants me to write a children's version of Embrace the Suck with puppies in it. So. Maybe we'll I actually <laughs> love that idea. No she's, Goggins she's forward in that? No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> there will not be a forward by David Goggins in that one. <laughs>
1: All right. So the way we usually wrap these things up is just what we call the one big thing. Like yep. you get a second to just say one big thing to listeners that you want them to take away from, from yep. our talk or they, they should
0: implement in their life or whatever. So what's yep. your one big thing? Uh, it's a good question because it's actually how I end the the book Embrace the Suck. The last chapter uh, is titled We're all going to die so get off your ass and execute. Hmm. And it really is inspired by Stephen Covey's Habits, you know, 7 Habits of Highly affected People, number 2 being, you know, think with the end in mind. Act with the end in mind, plan with the end in mind, have your own personal exit strategy, if you will. A lot of people have been, you know, very negatively impacted, you know, with COVID and everything that's changed and the loss of business, the loss of life, the uncertainty, the anxiety, mental health issues. But start thinking about managing that list of what I call life regrets. You have a a huge impact on what you're going to regret when this short life comes to an end. And start thinking about what don't you, what do you not want to regret? And there's a, you know, there's a little model in the back of the book. That says, when it comes to this, I don't want to regret this, and that could be family, life, mm. business, faith, love, uh, relationships. You know, again, going back to writing it down, write it down, and then act accordingly. So really, you know, think with the end in mind, and uh, and and have that impact how you think about your career, uh, how you parent your relationships, who you surround yourself with. And who you shouldn't surround yourself with—all those things—so that you can uh, live a more fulfilling life that has much, you know, at least fewer regrets <laughs> than uh, than you want to have uh, when it when it comes to a an eventual
2: close. Love it! Thanks for joining us, Brent. Oh, this
1: thanks, was guys. Awesome. Had a blast. All right, Brent, Brent Gleason, two books: Taking Point, Embrace the Suck. Yep, uh, the books are on.
0: All retailers, both you know, brick and mortar, and of course the the Amazons of the world. Um, company websites, takingpointleadership.com dot and I'm on social media on LinkedIn, of course, and uh, I'm on Instagram now. I was told I needed to do that. So, <laughs> Brent underscore Gleason. There you go. If you're looking
1: for them, that's how you find them. Check those books out, man. Thanks for hanging out. With thanks, us. guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.